Greetings, welcome. We are kicking off a six-session study in the book of Ruth. I am excited to go on this journey with you. Some of you are going to be doing this individually. Others are listening and discussing in a group format. Um, but regardless of, of how you're coming at this with us, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. There'll be a study guide for each of these sessions. And my advice would be to keep that handy. There'll be different times during this that I'll actually take a break and say, hey, pause this, go look at the study guide, reflect on some of the things that we've been talking about, and then come back ready for the next section. So if at all possible, if you're studying this or getting ready for a small group discussion, interact with this audio uh, while having the study guide handy. Ruth is a tiny little book, only four chapters long, this ancient story. And of course, like any little story like this in, in the scriptures, it, there's a lot packed in and it opens up with just a few words. We're going to look at just the first five verses of Ruth, but we're going to find all sorts of backstory and layers and subtleties and nuances come to the surface and we begin to see the author sets up the entire story in Ruth. And like any good story, until we know the backstory, we don't fully appreciate the story we're hearing. And so what I want to do is I actually want to take you backward before we can go forward. So come with me as we go backward. This story is actually 30 generations in the making. Of course, it starts right at the beginning in Genesis. And here in Genesis 4, we find the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, two brothers and their father. And as the story goes, Cain is very angry with his brother Abel, and so he kills him. And the story says that his brother's blood, Abel's blood, cries out to God from the ground. This is the first time we see a major tragedy within a family. What this does is that it triggers a Hebrew concept called Yibim. Yibim is all about restoring the legacy and the name of someone who has died so that his name and his legacy might be carried on, might be able to live on even after they're gone. And that happens in those days, that happened through your children. Your children were your legacy. The children were literally the name that went on after you were gone. When somebody died, their line, literally their lineage and their line ended with them. And so it was necessary for that family. It was the responsibility of that family to do something, to intervene, to restore that tragedy. The solution was for one person, particularly the brother, but it could be somebody else, one person from within the family to produce an heir, to produce a child that could stand in the place of the fallen one. God then formalizes this practice in his law in places like Deuteronomy 25. And he says, the reason I'll have you do that is so that the name of the fallen one may not be blotted out of Israel. And so we find that here in Genesis 4. There is a tragedy. Someone dies. Someone dies too young. Abel is gone and his line, his lineage has been potentially erased. And this is particularly uh, troublesome because there's only four people 
here to begin with. So this is of great need. Somebody needs to step in and carry out an act of Yibim. So God asks Cain. He says, where's your brother? What happened? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Which is essentially saying, I don't really care about him. I mean, he's the one that did the murdering. So probably chances are he's not too interested in carrying on his brother's name. So we have a problem. Yibam needs to happen. Abel's legacy, his name needs to carry on. And so his father, Adam, steps in. And it says in verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. That's key. That's that Yibam concept. We named him Seth because God has granted another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. It's a story of a cut-off line that gets restored. All right, let's pause there. And if you have your study guide with you, uh, look at the section called You and Yibam. This will give you a chance to explore this concept a little more and see where it fits within the Cain and Abel narrative. And then when you're done uh, and you've kind of gone through those questions, come on back and we'll jump into the next section. All right, welcome back. We have looked at the, the practice of Yibam and how it's fit into sort of this overarching backstory to Ruth. And now, ten generations later, we come to another story of a father and three sons. Another story about one whose line gets cut off, and how someone in the family jumps to try to restore the situation. And it's actually the, the story of Noah and his sons uh, post-flood. They're done with the flood, they come out, and then there's this very peculiar, bizarre story about Noah and getting drunk and letting it all hang out. We don't have time to get into all the details of what's happening here. But something happens in that tent. Ham, one of Noah's sons, walks into the tent. And the text says that he sees his father's nakedness. If you study that deeper, you'll find that more likely than not, that's a euphemism for some sort of violation Ham does to Noah. He, he literally cuts off his nakedness or cuts off his ability to have another child. The great tragedy that strikes and the reason that Ham eventually gets cursed by Noah is because Ham goes in and cuts off another future line for Noah. And so his brothers spring into action. It says they take up a cloak and they cover their father's nakedness. There's, this is another story of Yibam. This is another story of attempting to restore a line and a legacy and a name that has been cut off. This is why Noah blesses these two brothers, Shem and Jepheth. It's almost as if he's saying the consequences are irreversible, but you two, because of your attempt at Yibam, your lines and your legacies and your names will carry on and be blessed while Ham's will be shut off forever. It's another story of redeeming that what is lost. And then, exactly ten generations later, there comes another story about a father and three sons. It's a story about Terah and his three sons, Nahor, Haran, and Abram, who will be later called Abraham. We find this story right at the end of Genesis 11. And here, once again, one of the brothers dies. 
And all of a sudden, there is a need for his line and his lineage to continue forward. And so his brothers spring into action. The dead son, Haran, has two daughters. Nahor marries one of the daughters, and Abram marries the other, named Sarah. It's the clearest form of Yibam we have seen yet. A brother dies, his legacy is in jeopardy, and so his brothers step in and make sure that his name will not be blotted out. They will produce children for him on behalf of him so that his legacy carries on. It has been noticed by rabbis and scholars that these stories are connected, each exactly ten generations apart, all have an element of a father and sons, of tragedy striking, and one someone from the family stepping in in an act of yibim to try and restore the situation. And there's a progression to these stories. It's noticed that every ten generations, things seem to get a little better. Cain was apathetic, and so Adam steps in. Ten generations later, Shem and Jetham, they act. They attempt to help. Ten generations after that, now we see real, clear picture of Yibam as Abram and Nahor redeem their brother Haran and marry his daughters in order to carry out his name. So if you're reading this and you're aware of the connections of these stories, you're aware of the cycles, the next question you'd ask is, well, what happens Ten generations from Abram. If things are getting better, if every ten years we see this story of Yibam happening, where we are restoring and bringing to life and carrying out a name when the tragedy strikes, what happens ten generations later that will give us an even clearer picture of what this restoration is all about? Well, Abram gives birth to Isaac. That's generation one. Who gives birth to Jacob? That's two. Who gives birth to Judah? That's three. Who gives birth to Peretz? That's four. Hezron, Ram, Amimadab, five, six, seven. Nashon, that's eight. Nashon to Solomon, that's nine. And Solomon gives birth to a man named Boaz. Welcome to the book of Ruth. Let's take another break now. And if you've got that study guide handy, I'll look on to the section called Moving On Up. And we're going to have you explore where you see Yibam in these other two stories, in the Noah narrative and in the Abram story, and how Yibam is progressing. We're seeing greater and more fuller examples of it. Take a look at that, explore that, and then come on back when you're done. All right, we're back. Been seeing uh, this story of Ruth 30 generations in the making. We've looked at each of the three pivot points in the story. Uh, with Cain and Abel and Noah and his sons and Terah and his sons. Each cycle, things are getting better. If you're a reader that has seen the connections and seen these cycles play out every 10 generations, you're ready for the next Yibam story. You're ready for the next story of redemption. How is this going to play out 10 generations down the line? And what we'll find is that a redemption story is coming, but it's not found in the place anyone was expecting. The story starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Mahalan and Kilian. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Let's just stop right there. So much happening in these first two verses. Let's try to unpack a little bit of that there. The story sets up the way the other stories set up. This is something you would expect. There was a man and he had some sons, two sons that would like you, you would think, okay, this story is going just like I thought it would. This is the, this is how these types of stories start. But there's a turn that happens right at the beginning. We, we discover that there's this famine in the land and instead of living, staying within their homeland, within the land of promise, they go to a foreign nation of Moab. And we get some clues from the text that this is not what they should be doing. For starters, it, we're told specifically that they come from Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread. So they're literally leaving a place called the house of bread to go to a foreign nation. The picture is also filled in for us through a rabbinic source called the Midrash, which is this ancient Jewish commentary on these stories. And so the Midrash says that this man, Elimelech, he was actually a well-respected leader in the community. He was a great man in his generation. He was wealthy and people looked to him for help, for food and in times of famine. But then it quotes him as saying, now all of them will come to my doorpost when this famine hits, each one with his begging cup in my hand. So he arose and fled from them. We get this picture of a man who's fleeing from his responsibility. He wants to be this great leader, but when times are tough, when times are hard, he turns his back on him. In fact, his very name means kingship is due to me. He, he feels that he is a, a man and a leader, and yet at a time when the people need a king the most, he flees. He chooses Moab over the house of bread. And it doesn't appear that the sons are much better because their names mean sickness and destruction. So this is not painting a good picture. Fleeing your responsibility, running from your homeland and into a foreign nation, Names that believe that their kingship is due to them of sickness and destruction. If you're reading this, you're, you're wondering, how is this, how is this going to play out? But the potential Yibam story goes on because we see the tragedy strike in the next verse. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. If you're reading this, you go, ah, we're back on track. The tragedy in the family has struck, and you assumption is, is that now these two sons are going to jump into action. They are going to continue on their dad's legacy. They're going to marry and carry on his name for generations. But something shocking happens. They don't go back to Bethlehem. They don't find Israelite wives to carry on the name and the lineage and the legacy of their father. Instead, in the very next verse, Verse 4, it says they married Moabite women. This is expressly forbidden in the law. Places like Deuteronomy 7, God forbids this type of marriage. He says, you shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your son away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And now their names make more sense. Their names mean sickness 
and destruction. They're living into that which they are. They are heading down the road of destruction. What they're doing is the exact opposite of Yibim. If Yibim is about maintaining a name and a legacy for your family who cannot carry it out themselves, this actually is the exact opposite of this because any children they have with these Moabite women will no longer be part of the children of Israel. They're not maintaining the legacy of their father. They're actually doing the opposite. They're destroying the legacy of their father. And so just like their father who dies fleeing and not taking responsibility for what he's supposed to do, these two sons also die. And now you're left wondering, if you're the reader, what is going on here? I mean, this was the next Yibam story. This is where we we're supposed to see even more progress than we did before in the last three. And yet we get to the end of verse 5 and it leaves us completely empty. This isn't the way it's supposed to happen. Every ten generations, a clear and more beautiful act of Yibam is supposed to happen. And now, all looks lost. The author is setting us up for a redemption story, but it's not the story we thought was going to happen. Redemption is going to happen outside of the original plan through a woman named Ruth. Let's pause one more time and have you look at the first five verses of Ruth, chapter 1. In your study guide, you'll look at the section called Setting the Stage. These first five verses really set the stage for everything that's going to happen in the book of Ruth. And you're going to wrestle a little bit with these names and these places and why the author is telling this anti-Yibam story in order to show us a new redemption through a way that no one was expecting, through a way that was not the original plan. And then we'll come back and begin to ask some questions of ourselves, of our lives, and uh, what this means, uh, what this means for us. All right. We have been using Ruth sort of like a map. We've been tracing the generational history of Ruth and seeing how it sets up this whole narrative that we're going to be looking at. But now let's actually turn our attention now and use this as a mirror to see where we fit uh, in the story. Ruth is a story of redemption. We've said that before. But what we'll find is that God is going to redeem all sorts of stuff in these four chapters. He's going to redeem hurts. He's going to redeem family histories. He's going to redeem reputations. He's going to redeem challenging situations. But here, what, what struck me was how God redeems this mistake. We've said that the two sons were never meant to marry Moabite women. This was not the way God intended it. It was not the way it was supposed to be. It was not God's ideal. And if that's the case, that means Ruth, who we herald as uh, this faithful woman who is a part of God's story, should have never been a part of it in the first place. Think of that. If they had done what God had asked them to do, if these two brothers would have been faithful to God's commandments, then Ruth's story disappears. Her very presence in the Bible is due to unfaithfulness. What are we to make of that? What I find comforting about this reality is that God redeems our mistakes. 
He can take our shortcomings and actually weave them back into his story. And for the book of Ruth, that story leads us all the way to Jesus. We'll look at this a little more closely in the last section of Ruth. But Boaz and Ruth are going to continue the name and the legacy and the line that will lead to King David, which will eventually lead to King Jesus. What that means is that the generational line that leads to Jesus includes illegitimate children, mistakes, things that weren't God's plan, that weren't God's ideal, and yet God is big enough to take our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our fallibility, and actually redeem it to accomplish his purposes and his will. And for me, that is such a comforting idea. In fact, in in Matthew 1, Matthew 1 begins with a generational line describing how we got from Adam all the way to Jesus. And lo and behold, it includes Ruth. Matthew found it important enough to include Ruth in this generational line, even though she had no business being there. Had these brothers done what they were supposed to do, her name wouldn't have even been in there. And yet God made a way. I think of stories in my life, times where I messed up, times where I I didn't take God seriously enough, and yet I look back on them and see how God used my mistakes and my shortcomings to continue his story in my life. As as some of you might know, we planted a church in Rochester uh, from 2012 to 2016. And as I look back, I, I admit that I didn't always include God in my plan. I thought a lot about strategy. I thought a lot about uh, influence and, and connecting people together and trying to build a church. And yet I look back and I definitely didn't actually include God in that plan as much as I should have. And I think that was one of the reasons why it didn't work. And so four years later, we didn't know where to go. We were left empty. I I feel like that part in in Ruth 1, in verse 5 of Ruth, there was this uh, emptiness, sort of this gut punch feeling you get when you read the verse that Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's just sort of how it ends. It's just sort of a, what, what do we do now? I resonate with that verse because four years ago, that's how we felt. I ask God, what, what, do we, what do we do now? But the great hope I find in, in, in this verse, the great hope we've found is that God redeemed my mistake. And we found a church here in Buffalo. We found a place where we could belong. We found a place where God could redeem my story as a pastor. Had I allowed God to lead, I might still be in Rochester. That might be the line that I would have been on, but I'm not there, I'm here. But God redeemed my story. God redeemed our family's story. What is it for you? As you look back on the last year, on the last five years, on the last ten years, where was that mistake? Where where were those series of little choices you made that took you on a different path? And you look back and you say, you know, had I done that better, had I done that differently, I might have been over there or, or here or I could have been somewhere else. 
And yet God took my mistake, God took my shortcomings, and he redeemed my story, and now I'm here. I think sometimes we feel like God has this one singular path that we're supposed to be on. And if we deviate, if we, if we, if we mess up, we go off this path, and there's, there's no way back. But we find in Ruth that's not true. If that were true, this would have messed up all of God's plans, and yet it doesn't. God is bigger than anything that we do, and he can redirect all of our shortcomings, all of our mistakes, back into his story. You do not have to live in slavery and bondage to your mistakes. And that doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously, and we do everything we can. We are single-minded to be faithful to what God has for us and what God has commanded of us. Absolutely. But we also find that God forgives and redeems and restores. And we don't have to live with those mistakes hanging off of us. We don't have to live with the mistakes of our past weighing us down. The mistakes are included in the line that leads us to Jesus, who on a cross said, it is finished. You are forgiven. I have made a way forward, a path for you. So may you not be haunted by your past. May you live into the freedom of the gospel. And may you worship the God who redeems it all.